It was a great night, a glorious night. As the young man arose from the waters of baptism, everyone shouted amen and clapped. And then as the preacher walked the young man out to meet the congregation, and just as they circled up to pray, the preacher kind of put a damper on the moment as he said these words. First he said, this is great, isn't it? And then everyone responded by shaking their head yes and saying amen. And then the preacher said, but before we get too giddy, let me ask a question. Why should we bring a new person into something that isn't working? He continued, something is wrong and it's been tormenting me for quite some time. He said all the formulas and strategic planning, mission statements and visionary sermons are not making disciples. Where's the personal transformation after all that is put into the weekend services and the Bible studies and the small groups and the outreach events? He said, we've been engaged in a studied routine of religious activity without a change. Maybe not the best place or occasion to share those thoughts, but I think are valid thoughts nonetheless. As Christians, we believe the gospel, but I think we would have to admit that believing the gospel doesn't always translate into gospel-type living. One study I read recently states that Christians are not much different than their non-religious neighbors when it comes to uh, the divorce rate, premarital sex, domestic violence, and the use of pornography. The study also indicated that Christians are more likely to hold racist views than other people. Now, I don't know if that study is completely and totally accurate, but one thing I think I do know is that Christians, by and large, don't seem to be pursuing holiness like they should. You know, I often think about this. I often reflect on my life, and I think, where would I be today if I wasn't in ministry? I became a youth minister about two years after becoming a Christian, so I was a, a very new convert. In 1997, I was baptized, and I wish I could tell you that from that moment forward, I was on fire for God. I was passionate about living a holy life, but I wasn't. Sad to say, I really wasn't. I, I would attend church most Sundays, but if I was too tired on Sunday night, I wouldn't go. Even Sunday morning, as, as a coach, if I was tired from the weekend, if I had a game the night before, I, I probably wouldn't always be as vigorous to get up and, and engage in the routine of going. I know it's probably backwards, but it's me becoming a minister that really kind of changed my outlook and changed my view on things. I don't know that I would be as de dedicated as a disciple if it weren't for my life as a minister. And while I certainly bear the brunt of the responsibility, and we all do, we all bear the brunt of personal responsibility when it comes to this pursuit of holiness, we, we do have to admit that we have fallen short as a church, as, uh, as Christians, when it comes to helping in this endeavor. And I think it all boils down to that second part of the statement in the Great Commission, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. I think we have to admit that we don't always do as well in this part. We, we talk about the neglect of the Great Commission. We even call it the Great Omission. And we know that we fall short in our evangelistic efforts so often. So many times we don't even know where to start. And so, you know, we, we, we often shirk our responsibility. And it's often the case, though, that when we do, 
baptize someone. We kind of dunk them and send them on their way. We're not real certain about what comes next or we don't really engage in that process as much. We put an announcement in the bulletin. We announce it from the pulpit that so-and-so has, has been cleansed of their sins, that they engaged in baptism, and, and it's an exciting time for them. But what's next? Do we help them as far as the teaching them to observe all that I've commanded part? Are we helping them in their growth and their maturity? We talk about someone obeying the gospel as if it's a one-time deal, but it's not. You never are through obeying the gospel. Something that I think Peter refers to in 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's read there. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood, May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved for you in heaven, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice in inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children Do not be conformed to the former lust, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We put a lot of emphasis on the decision to be baptized, and and rightfully so, but sometimes it ends there with the decision, and that's it. We put a period there, but Peter doesn't. Peter says it doesn't end there. Obeying the gospel is not a one-time decision. It's a way of life. It's a lifestyle. It's transformation. It's pursuit of holiness. So the question is not, have you obeyed the gospel? The question is, are you currently obeying the gospel? You go back to the very beginning of this passage we just read, and I want you to notice some of the phrases. To those who reside as aliens, who are chosen, those who are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This is who Peter is addressing his words to. 
He is addressing Christians. Not people who need to be baptized, but people who have already been baptized. And he tells them, live with the end in view. It's almost as if he's taking the story and he's working backwards. Now, Peter believed and his audience believed that that Jesus was coming back and that he was coming back really soon, at which time they would be called home. So you live today in that reality. You prepare for that reality. Notice what he writes. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in essence, Peter says, place your hope in the return of Jesus and live your life in light of his coming back. Now, granted, again, Peter and his audience felt like that that was going to happen sooner than later, but we still need to be living with that same hope and that same anticipation. Are you living with the end in mind? Are you reading the story backwards? Are you starting with the fact that Jesus is coming back and therefore I've got to be prepared? I've got to be ready when that day comes. Because when you start at the end and you work your way back, it inspires you to seek something deeper, something more profound, something that we call holiness. Now, you know how I like to tie the story of Israel in with all of this because that story is our story. And so we have to go back a little bit further. Go back to Exodus chapter 19, if you will. And let's look, beginning in verse 2, what it states. It says, When they set out for Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I uh, did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So we know that God chose the Israelites to be a holy nation. Among them, he chose the Levites to be doubly set apart. He was setting his people apart. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God commanding his people to do certain things, to not do certain things, to keep away from certain things, to eat certain foods, to not eat certain foods. And he says, remember. Remember what God did to the Egyptians. Remember, remember what he did in order to free you. Remember, remember the ten plagues. Remember the parting of the Red Sea. These are distinct things that point to a distinct and unique God. God was setting his people apart. And in Leviticus 19.2, he tells Moses to tell the people, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. In other words, God says, I am going to make a distinction between my people, you, and the other people. I'm making a distinction. I'm setting you apart. Now consider all that with what we looked at in 1 Peter chapter 1. And also combine that with 1 Peter chapter 2. Look there, starting in verse 4, it says, And coming to him as to a living stone, which is rejected by men, but is a choice and precious stone in in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed." But you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are a people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Here's the message. You're God's temple. You are priests. You are his chosen people. We are his holy nation. We are set apart and consecrated. Just as God made a distinction between the Israelites and the other nations, God has made a distinction between us and the rest of the world. Peter drives this point home in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 14. He writes, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be yourselves holy also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. To be holy means to be a people shaped by God. We're not shaped by culture. We're not shaped by anyone else around us. We are shaped by God. We are shaped by His will and His commands. Just as Israel was shaped by God's law, we are shaped by the gospel. We are shaped by grace. We are shaped by what is written in God's Word. That's what sets us apart. Let me ask you. How many of you, when you're walking through the Walmart parking lot, see food lying on the ground and so you pick up and eat it? How many of you do that? You know what I'm talking about. You're walking through the parking lot and there's a hot dog laying there and you say, well, that's a pretty decent hot dog and you just pick it up and you start eating it. Or how many of you go to throw something away in the trash in public somewhere and you see a donut in there and you, you know, it's, it's got a bite taken out of it, but you think, well, that's a it's still a perfectly good donut, and so you pull it out of the trash and you start eating it. My guess is no one does that. Not any of you do that. And the reason why is because it's filthy, right? I mean, it's either been in the trash or it's been laying on the ground. The, the bugs, the, the, the flies, the birds, they've had their run at it. Who wants to eat something like that? And I think what Peter's saying is, as much as you guard your mouth and what you put into it, you need to guard your, yourself just as much. Don't go eating waste. Don't go putting things into your mind and into your heart that are garbage. We need to guard what enters our mind as carefully as we guard what enters our mouth. Because if you feed your mind on garbage on a regular basis, it's going to make you spiritually sick. And that's what Peter is getting at when he talks about the how of holiness. What we have just mentioned is the why. He talks about the why. Why holiness? Because you have been saved, because you're heading to heaven, because the heavenly father is holy, therefore be holy like him. Now he shifts gears and talks about the how. And notice again what he writes, verse 13. Therefore prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter uses a word picture here of a man wearing a long robe and he's getting ready to run so he picks it up. He gathers it up so he can run without tripping that's what Peter is referring to here he's saying get ready to run prepare yourself for action and then he says focus on the things that truly matter in other words not the garbage of this world when Peter says be sober he's using a word whose underlying meaning is wineless the meaning of which points to the clouding influence of alcohol or any other narcotic stimulant. And as you, as you may know, alcohol or other narcotic stimulants can cause us to lower our standards, to maybe compromise our values. So in a broader sense, to be sober means to be free of anything that clouds your spiritual or moral judgment. You think about the things that could potentially cloud your spiritual or moral judgment, a wrong relationship maybe, 
certain forms of entertainment, maybe a habit that is causing you harm, guilt, and or shame. I, I think what Peter is saying is that there are some people you shouldn't be friends with. There's some songs you shouldn't listen to. There's some television programs you shouldn't watch, some movies you shouldn't go see. There are some people you shouldn't date. There are some things on the internet you shouldn't look at. There are relationships that aren't good for you. There are some habits that you need to break. And, and I'm sorry, I don't have a, a complete list of directives or an exhaustive list of movies or songs or books or whatever that you need to stay away from, but keep your eyes open. Put a filter on your mind and don't let anything cloud your vision or your judgment. That's what Peter is saying. Because you are holy. You have been set apart. You are consecrated. And Peter reminds us that we have a new goal. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Everything sets their hope, everyone sets their hope on something. Everyone. Everyone sets their sights on something. You know, a student sets their sights on graduation. An employee sets his sights on a promotion or a raise. A bride sets their hope and their vision on the wedding day. A runner sets his hope or his vision on crossing the finish line. And Peter says, Jesus is coming back. Set your hope on that. Set your vision on that. Keep your eyes on the prize and don't get distracted by all the things of this world. It reminds me of a, a story I read not long ago about the Athens Olympics. And during the Athens Olympics, American Matt Emmons was one shot away from winning gold in the men's three-position 50-meter rifle competition leading by three points going into the final station, the final round, all Matt had to do was just hit close to the bullseye and he would win. And so he aimed and he pulled the trigger and he waited, but the target never fell. Because what happened is while he was standing in station three, stall three, he hit the target in stall two, which immediately meant that he would drop from first place to eighth place and out of metal contention it was it was a terrible error because the judges gave him a zero Matt Emmons took his his eyes off the target and he put him in the wrong place we must be careful not to do the same now I want you to notice one more detail from this passage it's in verse 15 Peter writes but like the holy one who called you be yourselves also in all your behavior. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. In all your behavior. So, it's God when I wake up. It's God when I go to bed. It's God when I'm going to work. It's God when I'm at work. It's God in the classroom. It's God when I'm watching TV. It's God when I'm surfing the internet. It's God in my relationships. It's God at home. It's God in every thought. It's God when I'm happy. It's God when I'm sad. It's God when I succeed. It's God when I fail. It's God before me, behind me, and around me. It's God with me. It's God saturating my life, consuming my life. He is all that I am and all that I do. But all too often, what is missing, what is missing is this pursuit of holiness. Keeping God in a little category over here, having a relationship with Him when it truly matters and otherwise just forgetting about Him. I go and I worship God on Sunday, but I, I do whatever I want on Monday through Saturday. You know, when that preacher that I talked about in the opening illustration, when that preacher said something is wrong, this is what's wrong. People are getting baptized, but they're not being encouraged to pursue holiness. 
People are getting dunked and sent on their way without any sort of strategy, without any sort of direction. They're not translating the gospel into everyday life. In all of our efforts to bring people into the baptistry, we're not bringing them all the way to Christ. The disciple-making process must include post-baptism instructions. And a lot of it is we're not really even sure what the gospel is. Something we'll talk about in a later sermon. But the gospel is not just the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those things are of first importance, Paul says, but that's not all that the gospel is. And the gospel is not the plan of salvation. That's how we respond, and it's important, it's crucial, it's vital, but that's not the complete gospel either. The gospel is the story of, of Israel that finds its completion in Jesus Christ. The anointed one, the Messiah, came, he lived, he died he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He's coming back. We've got to understand the whole picture, the entire narrative, the bigger story. Discipleship is not about obeying the gospel one time. It is a constant pursuit. It's not just about getting baptized. It is, but it's more than that. Discipleship is about becoming holy as God is holy. It, it is a constant pursuit that takes more than just going through five steps. It takes more than just coming to church. It takes more than just sharing the gospel. It takes more than just a lot of the things that we categorize as Christian. It takes leading by example. It takes teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Those new to Christianity and new to kingdom living need to see people as an example who are living it out on a daily basis. I read the story about a California driver's license examiner who was riding with a, a young man who, this examiner said, had almost the perfect driving test. He said the only place that he failed, the only place that he didn't do so well, is when the whole test was over and he let the examiner out of the car. Before the examiner left completely, he could still hear the young man mumble to himself as he sighed, I'm glad I don't have to drive like that all the time. That boy is not unlike a lot of us, a lot of Christians that appear to be holy, maybe when someone is watching, but maybe lets their standards down when no one else is around. Maybe there's not much difference between them and those in the world, except maybe that they go to church a little more often. Unfortunately, it seems that Christianity doesn't always have a major effect on our lives. We know the meaning of holiness. At least we know what it means to be holy, to be, to be set apart, to be consecrated, it means separate, but are we living a holy existence? When we obey the gospel, we become positionally sanctified, but that's not where it ends. We must be progressively sanctified as we grow and mature, and only then can we be perfectly sanctified by Him. And listen, as I've told you before, people ask, you know, where do you come up with the ideas for your sermons? Well, I'll tell you where, by looking at my life. I'm preaching to myself first and foremost. And you say, well, Chris, you're the preacher. You don't have to deal with this. I mean, you get paid to read the Bible. You get paid to pray. You get paid to work on sermons. Yes, that's true. But I can be so invested in getting things done, especially when you work on a deadline, that I can forget why I even do it in the first place. This is deliberate. It's intentional. And it's difficult. But I want to encourage all of us to make it a lifestyle, to seek every day 
to invest in a pursuit of holiness. You know, it's kind of like the little girl that's got a lollipop and she sees a friend coming and she knows she should share, but she doesn't want to. And so what does she do? Well, she licks it all over. Now it's hers. Then she starts to lick it progressively. So it's hers. Finally, the process is over when the lollipop is completely gone. It's entirely hers. If we belong to God, He has set us apart to Himself. He is progressively making us like Him. And one day, someday in eternity, we will be made perfect and be with Him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be set apart. We are so thankful for your Son and our Savior. We're thankful for the bigger story. We're thankful for the gospel. We're thankful for the hope that comes, that is on the horizon, that Jesus is coming back. May we live our lives starting from the back, starting with the fact that he is coming back. And may we pursue holiness until he comes again. We love you, God. And it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.